Welcome back. Jay Wynn Russick, our theater critic here on Midday, joins me in Studio A. Good to see you, Judy. Good to be here, Tom. So we're going to talk about Dial M for Murder. It's a thriller at the Everyman Theater. So Vinny Lanchisi, who's Everyman's artistic director and also directed this production, he was on the show with a couple of folks from the cast a couple of weeks ago, and he said the script is a little bit different for this version of Dial M. Uh, from the one that we're kind of used to in terms of the movie, the 1954 movie. But remind us of what some of those differences are. Well, let me give you a little background. Frederick Knott, a British playwright, wrote the original Dial M for Murder, first for British TV. And then in 1952, it was a stage play. And in 54, as you said, uh, he wrote the screenplay for Alfred Hitchcock's movie version starring Grace Kelly and Ray Milland. That's probably the best-known version. But there have also been other movies. Every Man is using a fairly recent adaptation of Knott's play by Jeffrey Hatcher. It's the third Hatcher adaptation that Every Man has produced. The story is a dangerous love triangle. Uh, in Knott's play, the triangle is made up of a husband, his wealthy wife, and a man who has had an affair with the wife. The biggest difference in Hatcher's adaptation is that the wife's affair is with another woman. The husband's profession is also different. Originally, he was a tennis player. In Hatcher's version, he's a failed writer. In both cases, the husband hires someone to kill his wife. But though the husband seems to have planned the murder down to the smallest detail, things don't always go as planned. So the play consists of setting up the crime, witnessing the onset of the crime, and seeing what happens after the crime goes wrong. And I can tell you, you've seen the play too, things get pretty tangled up. So the suspense is partly a matter of if and when those things will get untangled. Every man's production is not very suspenseful. The night I attended, I didn't hear a single gasp from anyone in the audience. Oh, yeah. This is kind of a, a gasper. We saw, we, we kind of liked it. But um, you mentioned these, you know, big changes. How do they affect the plot? What do you think? Is it an improvement? Um, some yes, some not so much. Mm -hmm. um, making the wife's lover a woman raises the stakes. The play still takes place in the early 1950s when knowledge of a homosexual relationship, and this is an adulterous relationship, knowledge of that could damage a career or a reputation. Making the husband, whose name is Tony, a failed writer increases his jealousy. Unable to make it as a writer, Tony has taken a PR job with a publisher, and it's the very publisher that has just released a novel by Tony's wife's lover. And Tony is assigned to promote this novel. So there's romantic jealousy, there's jealousy of professional success, and then there's the money issue. This is unchanged. The wife has plenty of money, the husband has none. Hatcher's adaptation, like Knott's play, takes place in London. The lover is still an American who writes mysteries and thrillers. And this creates a kind of mirror-like situation. This is definitely an improvement, I think. Can a writer who concocts mystery plots solve one in real life? There's lots of banner about what constitutes a solid murder plot. The writer is named Maxine. In this version, she's played by Megan Anderson. Anderson portrays her as a tough, blunt-spoken, brash American. Beth Hilton plays the wife as a softer, gentler, trusting character. I have a clip from a scene in which she helps Maxine prep for a BBC interview. She does this by posing prepared questions. You'll hear Beth Hilton sound very encouraging. Let's listen. Is there such a thing as a perfect murder? And if so, can you cite an example? 
If I could cite an example, it wouldn't be a perfect murder. There are people who have committed murders who walk amongst us every day. On the street, in tea shops, at the pub. A murderer could be sitting on your sofa. Or lying next to you in bed. <coughs> That's very good. Thank you. That's Beth Hilton and Megan Anderson, two of my favorite actors in town. They're part of the Everyman uh, resident company there at Everyman Theater. They're in this production of Dial M for Murder. So, Judy, they portray the female characters. Tell us about the men in this show. Well, there are three male characters. Tony Nam plays the husband, also called Tony, as I've mentioned. And he plays him as a very cool character. He doesn't play him as a villain, and I think that deepens the deception. Danny Gavigan plays the bad guy that Tony lures into committing the crime. This is a character with a very shady past and a string of aliases to prove it. And Gavigan makes him properly slimy. And then there's Bruce Randolph Nelson, and he plays the police inspector investigating the crime. Nelson plays him as sort of every man's every man. He's a bit like Columbo in that he seems doddering, but he turns out to be the shrewdest character on stage. He doesn't show up until the second act, but almost from the moment we meet him, the pace of the production speeds up. I brought a bit of that scene. Let's listen. I'm Chief Inspector Hubbard. Inspector, this is Miss Hadley, a friend of ours. Maxine Hadley. You and Mr. Wendis were together last evening. Yes. Why was that? Why was what? Why were the two of you together? Miss Hadley was uh, recording an interview for the BBC. Mr. Wendis works for my publisher. You're an author. Miss Hadley writes murder mysteries. <laughs> <laughs> Inspector, what can we do for you? We gave your people all the necessary information last night. Yes, I'm sure, but there are a few things I'd like to get firsthand. Murder mysteries. I love Beth's accent there. That's Bruce Randolph Nelson, Tony Nam, Megan Anderson, and Beth Hilton in Dial M for Murder. It's at the Everyman Theater. So, Judy, what do you think? Are there elements in this version, in fact, that do heighten the tension? Not enough. Uh, it's billed as a thriller, but this production is more of a mystery, almost an intellectual mystery, than a squirm-in-your-seat thriller. But the biggest damper on the thrills is that it's difficult to care about these characters. Jeffrey Hatcher has streamlined the dialogue, he's tightened some of the longer speeches, but he's also added a few new twists. And these further complicate or confuse the plot. There's now so much plot, it doesn't leave a lot of room for character development. It also doesn't help that parts of the big fight scene look more like flailing than a life-and-death struggle. You know, it's interesting. Every man has done several murder mysteries at this time of year, holiday time. And when Vince, Vincent Lanchese was on the show a while back, he said that mysteries work well for them at this time of year. It's interesting. Is Dial M for Murder a good you know, antidote to the, all those Christmas carols and sugar plum fairies that we're uh, seeing on stages these days? Well, Tom, as someone who has seen countless Christmas carols, I have to say <laughs> it's a relief to have something more savory than sweet at this time of year. And every man extended the run of Dial M for Murder by a week, so some audiences appear to agree with this. But this is a thriller that just isn't quite thrilling enough. Yeah, interesting. We were there opening night, and Vinny made a speech to some folks who were assembled before the play started, and he said, 
Uh, they tried a murder mystery, and it sold out. It did great. And then the next year, they went back to some holiday fair, and it didn't sell so well. So they said, hey, you know, we, we are going to take some empirical evidence here and act on it. So they've been doing murder mysteries uh, ever since. It's an interesting take. Uh, but as you say, this has been extended. It's going to be there until the 7th of January. It was going to close, you know, before New Year's. Uh, so, you know, somebody's somebody's paying attention. That's a good thing. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much, not just for reviewing this play, but for all the plays that you have reviewed over the past year. We really, really appreciate it. And we look forward to all the stuff that you're going to share with us uh, in the new year. Well, it is my pleasure, and I wish all our listeners uh, happy holidays. Indeed, and happy holiday to you. As a matter of fact, when we do come back after the New Year's break, we're going to talk about a show that I think uh, you know has gotten a lot of good early buzz, Ragtime, a great uh, musical. It's at the Signature Theater, so we'll talk about it then uh, in a week or so. Looking forward to it. I saw it last night, and I'm eager to share it with the listeners. Good. We look forward to it. Jay Ben Rusick, her new novel is called Please Write, a novel in letters. It's definitely worth checking out. And that's it for us today. Tomorrow, it's our annual midday Christmas Eve special. We'll hear some wonderful music and sample some poetry and a couple of holiday stories. Hope you can join us then. Midday's director and engineer is Shania Mapson. Luke Spicknell is WIPR's operations manager. Taria Rogers and Mallory Pinkard-Pierre produce our program. They get a little help from Sam Burmas-Dawes and Izzy Bavis as well. Austin Coglin from Clean Cuts wrote and recorded the midday theme music. Here and Now is up next at the top of the hour after the news, so stick around for that. I'm Tom Hall. We'll be off next week. I appreciate your interest and attention to our show during the year. We hope you have a wonderful holiday season, a wonderful new year, and we will see you after the first. Our Conversations with the Candidates series begins on January 3rd with former Mayor Sheila Dixon, and on January 2nd, when we're back live, I'll speak with Dr. Lena Wen for the January edition of the Midday Health Watch. Have a great day, everybody. You're listening to Baltimore's NPR News Station, member-supported 88.1 WYPR.